Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 52. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy land, the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. May God bless his word. You may be seated. It is, uh, I think it's my first sermon in English in three years, so forgive, forgive whatever might come out of my mouth today. I hope it'll be in your language or make some sense to you. One of the reasons I had them read such a long text of scripture was so that Paul would be preaching first, and if anything sticks, 
Hopefully it'll be what Paul said and not me. Um, So as I guess as most of you are aware by now, my wife and I and my, our four kids, we live in Italy. Um, Italy is an interesting place because everywhere you go, you see crosses and images that point you to the gospel. Um, Literally everywhere you go, Uh, big churches, big statues, words engraved on the sides of buildings, all pointing to this wonderful, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, But unfortunately, being there long enough, you begin to see how this message has been buried under thousands and thousands of years of traditions and rituals and substitutes for the grace of God. And so we've ended up with something that has been all but lost and forgotten. And as I was first there, it was easy for me to fall to pride. It might be easy for us that are in America and have wonderful great churches that have the name Grace in the title, Orlando Grace Church. It might be easy for us to think, well, aren't we great because we hold the truth? And that was certainly my attitude when we went over there is that we're there to bring the truth because we've got it and they don't. But in truth, we all struggle with the same problem and that's what we'll be talking about today. We all have something that's called amnesia. Um, And if you know what amnesia is, it's partial or total memory loss. And um, I've heard the term gospel amnesia. I don't remember where I've heard it, but I didn't invent it, so I'm being honest with you. Gospel amnesia, what is that? It's, it's when we forget. We forget something or all of this wonderful gospel. And it's something that all of us struggle with every day. Maybe not as bad as Italy. Italy has all but lost it in terms of the everyday life of the church and the everyday life of what faith is over there. But we all struggle with gospel amnesia because the gospel is a message that isn't just information. It is news, but it's news that changes everything. The gospel gives us a new identity, a new value, a new worth. And we often forget all that that means. We're still learning all that that means. We forget who we are and how we should live in light of this life-changing truth of the gospel. And I know that this is true for you as it's true for me because it's been true from the beginning. Adam and Eve forgot, didn't they? In the end of the day, they forgot all that they had right there in front of them. They forgot the God that they were created to worship and relate to and live for. You see it happen in the nation of Israel. How many times were prophets sent just to simply remind the people of something they already knew or something that their parents were supposed to tell them that generation after generation were supposed to carry along. Peter. In 2 Peter, in the first chapter, I won't read them all, but he lifts wonderful, glorious characteristics of what it means to live in light of our Christianity, virtue and faith, character, all these sorts of things. And he says something incredible 
that for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. So if you profess Christ, but you lack these problem, these qualities of what it means to live in light of your new Christian identity, there's a problem. And he doesn't say because you're not trying hard enough. He says in verse 9, you have forgotten to have been cleansed from your former sins. We forget All of our shortcomings, all of our failures, all of our sin, all of our struggles as Christians are rooted in our gospel amnesia, in our ability to forget the message that we proclaim. This is the reason why our relationships fail, marriages struggle. This is the reason why we fail to walk in holiness of life. Imaging God as his creation. It's the reason why we try to prove ourselves to one another. It's the reason why we are depressed. It's the reason why we feel unfulfilled and unsatisfied in life is because we've forgotten. We fail to experience true lasting joy and fulfillment Or as your mission statement says, that we fail to experience ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. Not because Jesus is insufficient, but because we've forgotten. And today we'll see how the reason we forget the gospel is because there are two primary enemies of the gospel that every one of us struggle with. Some more than others. You'll lean towards one side, others will lean towards another. I'm not going to tell you what they are at this point. But we allow the gospel to be threatened by these enemies of the gospel, which is what we'll see in our text today in Acts chapter 13. Now I want to remember the context of Acts 13. I won't be preaching through every single verse in this text as much using Paul's message as a springboard to um, show where we forget. The context is we see in the book of Acts, we see Acts is, what is it? The Acts of the Apostles it's called. Others have called it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. What is it? It's the gospel advancing, isn't it? It's the people of God born again, given the Spirit, and living in light of this new identity. The life, death, and resurrection and and final ascension of Jesus redefined everything for these people. Everything. They're selling everything they've got. They're giving it away. They're leaving house and home. We see in Matthew 28, the gospels ending with the great commission, go, therefore. And then we see the book of Acts begin with Jesus teaching them about the kingdom and sending them into the world to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And, and the book of Acts is nothing more than the, the recounting of the missionary movement of the people of God living in light of their new gospel identity and the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God among the nations. Acts 1 verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and then he tells us what for. Why do we need this power? So that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, 
and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So when we're in Acts 13, we need to remember the context of where we lie is that we must remember that we are a sent people before we're anything else. We're sent. It's our identity. It's impossible to read the Bible story and think otherwise. And yet, so often churches, nothing more than gathering together, isn't it? It's easy for a missionary to come up and talk about being sent, isn't it? But we wrestle this in our context in Salerno. It's, it's all too easy to always gather. Gather for church, gather for small group, gather for prayer. And it's important because we're not only sent, we're the family of God. Families gather together. We're the family of God who serve Jesus as king. So the word's going to be present and proclaimed and preached. Yes, we're the people of God. Yes, the church gathers. But our gathering is for our scattering. Football would be extremely boring if it was a perpetual huddle. Can you imagine watching the game? What's going to happen next? Oh, they're still standing in a circle talking about the plays. They huddle, what for? To get back out on the field to play. Our gathering is for the equipping of God's people. I loved reading in Pastor Kurt's exhortation to you all. I wish I had the e-news in front of me. I'd read it to you about how to receive Jim. And you said something about let him do his work of equipping you for the sake of mission. Pastor Kurt is not here. Pastor Jim will not be here just so that you can be comfortable sitting in a pew listening to a wonderful sermon. Everything they say exists for the equipping of the church so that the church would live as the sent people of God on mission of everyday life. This is what we see precisely in the beginning of Acts chapter 13. If you want to look at the very first verses, it says, while they were In verses 2 and 3, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, gathering together, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So you have a brand new church sending out their two sharpest people. Antioch existed for the kingdom, and the kingdom was not only in Antioch. This is our vision for Salerno. I'm already starting to grieve because I've got these sharp young men and these sharp families amongst us, and I'm already starting to think, what is it going to look like to send them out? But I'm like, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot sending these people away, but I know we've got to. Because the kingdom is not just about Salerno. OGC by God's grace, will be a church-planting church because God has done so much among you already and he's done all of this so that he might send those among you out to multiply as the sent people of God. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Going, multiplying, gathering, equipping, going, multiplying. God's heart beats for the nation's 
He's a sending God and he's a God who was sent. And we are made in his image to be a sending people and people who are sent. The Father sent the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. And we see in Acts 1, the Spirit sends his church. Verse 4 of chapter 13, and being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So this is our context of Acts chapter 13. I found a map on the internet because everything you find on the internet is accurate and true. (laughs) So we're going with, (laughs) so we see the blue line is Paul going out, the red line is him coming back, but you see What do you see here? Movement. You see Paul and Barnabas sent out of Antioch to the island of Cyprus. And then you see them going back up to the mainland of Perga and then onto another Antioch of Pisidia, which is where we find ourselves in the text today. And when I look at that map, I see what should be true for all of us. Movement. The gospel is a movement. It might not be from Cyprus to Perga to Antioch of Pisidia. It might not be from Orlando to Salerno, Italy. For most of you, it won't be. But is your life marked by missionary movement? Are you living in light of your identity as the sent people of God? For you, it might be from home to home, building relationships for the glory of God. It might be from school to park to playground, to baseball field. It might be from a restaurant to a bowling alley, but we're scattering on mission together as God's people. Don't forget who we are because gathering together is all too beautiful. I love the gathering of the church. Finally, after all these years of ministry in Italy, I enjoy gathering together with our people. It took a while. I love it. And know it's already happening We're getting ingrown. We multiplied our community groups to grow. Guess what happened? People are starting to complain. I feel like it's not as intimate as it used to be or it's challenging or, you know, it's like that's what happens. Yes, read through Acts. Let me know if it was easy for the church to send out their best. Let me know if it was easy for them to be sent out on mission. It wasn't. That's not our focus today, though. I could stay, I could probably stay on that for the rest of our time, but I won't. I want to look at verses 26 through 31 in chapter 13. So brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him no guilt, in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and from, for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So Paul finds himself in Antioch. He's in the synagogue. And they ask him a question or they, more of a statement. Brothers, in verse 15, we see them say, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. 
Now, put yourself in Paul's shoes. Yeah, I think I, <laughs> I might have something to share with you. I, I might have a message or two to which we've read this morning, Paul's message to them. His response to us has been sent the message of this salvation. He goes on to show them the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, his defeating of death. He shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. And then in verse 38 and 39, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by in the law of Moses. Everyone, everything. So the book ends of his message. I've come with the message of salvation, and this message is a message of freedom. That's the good news of the gospel. We are a free people. We're sent out to proclaim a message of freedom. He uses a word here. How many seminary students in the room studying Greek? I'm not one of them. Anyone know the word for free there? Same word for justified. Dikaio. Somebody tell me how to pronounce it. Anyone? There it was. Here? You should be up here, by the way. Justified. Same word. Everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Acquitted. Set free from a penalty. It's a legal term. If you're accused of something in the court of law... Still true today, although here we're innocent until proven guilty. If you're accused, you had to prove your innocence to be acquitted from the crime. You had to be freed from it by proving that you weren't guilty. So in this context, Paul's talking about God and man, that we're guilty before God. We're criminals before him. We've broken his law. We deserve to be punished. Nobody will argue against that. And there's one punishment before a holy God. Romans 6.23, the wages of our sin, the penalty, the punishment, the just retribution is death. So in the court systems, you'd be obligated to prove your innocence. And before God, we try to do the same thing. That's what the Jews are doing with the law of Moses. That's what the Gentiles are doing through their good works. They're trying to convince God of their innocence. God's a judge. We know that we fall short of it. We know we're imperfect. So we try to prove ourselves by what we do. We take the law of God and we say, look how good I am. Look how good I follow it. I don't deserve to be punished. I'm too good to deserve death. We use our good life as the testimony before God that we aren't that bad. But the problem is obvious. Before a holy God, there is no amount of good that any of us can do 
that would be good enough. That's why Paul writes in Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, by your good life, no human being will be justified in the sight of God since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. So when Paul's proclaiming the gospel of salvation, he's proclaiming the gospel of freedom from sin, freedom from the law's ability to condemn us that leads to our salvation. That's the good news of grace. Unmerited favor. Because we never could merit it in the first place. We're totally, eternally set free through faith alone, by grace alone, through what Christ has accomplished for us alone. So what happens with this, we take this news and then we get confused. What do we do with the law? Where does that fit into the picture now? How does the law fit together with grace? How does the law fit together with this message of the gospel? And as a result, two things can happen. And here are our two threats. We're declared free, but we don't know how to live for God in a way that's pleasing to him if we don't have the law in our hands. So we come right back under the law and live as if we're no longer free. That's called legalism. The first great threat of the gospel. Follow the law, do good, get saved. Or, those of you who have understood enough that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by any works, Ephesians 2, you might get that part of it, but what we do is follow the law, do good, so that God will accept you in your everyday life, so that God will bless you, so that you'll earn God's favor. Freedom, we think, will come as we find the strength to follow the rules, to keep in line. And so we pray, God, give me the strength to follow your word. But why? Because we want to be free. We want to be acceptable. We want to be under his blessing. Legalism is a great threat to the gospel because our focus is on the law of God. When we misunderstood the law in this way, we think that God's approval of us is dependent on our good behavior. The second threat is different. In fact, it's the opposite. License. That is, we dismiss the law because we theologically know that we're under grace and the rules don't matter anymore. We know it doesn't save us, so we throw it away and we define freedom as the ability to do whatever we want. Grace wrecks us. Carson has a book, called, I think it's called Scandalous Grace. It's truly scandalous. It's dangerous to preach the limits of grace or the implications of grace. It's a paradigm shift that we don't know how to handle because it goes against everything we know. Unmerited. What in life isn't merited? You reap what you sow. Work hard, earn money, live the dream. Don't work hard, don't earn money, don't live the dream. What relationship blossoms if you don't put work into it? 
If you don't sow into the relationship, it goes against everything. The church has always struggled with the implications of grace. Think about Galatians. Why did Paul write Galatians? To fight against legalism. Because they're like, certainly it can't be just grace. Why do you write Romans? To fight against license. What shall we say then? Should we sin so that grace will abound? Of course not. The church has struggled from the beginning with grace. We don't know what to do with it. We understand that it saves us, but beyond that, we have no clue how grace transforms our lives. So we, we bounce between legalism and license as two great threats to the gospel that rob us of our joy in God and rob the gospel of its power to transform us. Because when we drift into either side, we're drifting away from grace. And grace is the transformative power of the gospel. So we don't experience freedom in life because we don't understand how the law and the gospel work together. But Paul proclaimed a message of salvation rooted in freedom. Christians are supposed to be the freest people on the planet. So I want to attempt to explain how they work together. So get your pen out if you'd like. I'm only going to say it twice. The law drives us to the gospel and the gospel frees us and empowers us to obey the law. The law drives us to the gospel and the gospel of grace frees us and empowers us to obey. When we realize all that God requires... We can no longer look at the law and say, okay, I got this. It drives us to despair. The honest person will look at the law in the face and say, no way. Impossible. I could never. And you couldn't be more right. Without the gospel of grace, We're done, finished. The crushing weight of the law should open our eyes to see our need for a savior so that we would be freed from its weight. And as we come to Christ in our desperation, the spirit enables us to delight in God's law and gives us the power to obey it. We just read from the Baptist Confession of Faith. These uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but are in sweet harmony with it. For the spirit of Christ subdues and enables the human will to do freely and cheerfully what the will of God as revealed in the law requires. The gospel frees us from both legalism and license And gives us the power to experience true joy in following God and obeying God as his followers and true life change in Christ. I want to break these down deeper just in case it's not clear. Martin Luther said this, The law, rightly understood and thoroughly comprehended, does nothing more than remind us of our sin and slay us by it. 
because it makes us liable to the eternal wrath of God. Paul says in Romans 3 that by the works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in his sight. The law is a mirror by which we see ourselves clearly, who we really are. We were flying back on Tuesday, just this past Tuesday. I'm still a little jet lagged. Um, And we had a super long flight, missed our connecting flight in New York, got delayed, came back super late. And the next morning I I woke up and I stood in front of the mirror and I'm like, help. (laughs) It's just hair everywhere, face. I don't even know what was wrong with me, but something was wrong with everything I saw. And all I could do is help somebody, make up, I don't know what, I need help. When we look in the mirror, we see the law, we see who we are. There's one response, help. A cry of desperation for grace. The law drives us to the gospel because the gospel is our only hope. Grace is our only hope. So the first aspect of our freedom is found in our freedom from sin's penalty to condemn us because the law of God requires it. We're under a new master. Grace. But grace forces us to confront a new master, license, liberty. We're under grace, so we're free from condemnation, so we run the other way. It's like letting a dog out of his cage, but the dog's untamed, and he's just going to take off running. I have a golden retriever. He sees a butterfly, and he's gone. Never see him again. We're free to do whatever we want. We're kind of hardwired for that, aren't we? From Genesis 3, we see it pretty quick. First chance. Fruit. It's always been there. Somebody asked me about it. There it is. Yeah, I suppose that's a good idea. Very first chance they had. Let out of their cage, they go for it. We're we're wired that way. So now instead of being enslaved under the impossible crushing weight of the law, we run to a new master and sin becomes our master. But sin's a horrible master because it's destructive. God's law is good, it's right. Sin is destructive. Sin destroyed the world, not law. Sin promises everything but gives you nothing. It's hardwired to do us harm because it goes against everything that God is. So grace is scandalous because in the economy of the gospel, there's no amount of sin that can undo grace. That's why Paul said in Romans 5.20, he's right. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And when you preach that message, it's dangerous because you can't out-sin the grace of God. But his point is, is that we shouldn't want to. The point of the gospel is true freedom, not freedom to do what you want. That we're freed from sin's penalty, but not only, we're also freed from sin's power to control us and destroy us. From sin's corruption. And so we see Paul, again, in verses 38 and 39, 
Through Christ, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. The law was never meant to be a pathway to freedom. Grace alone is the pathway to true freedom. Tim Keller says that the gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And this news should change everything about us. God's love for us, not just his salvation, but his love is rooted in grace. It's rooted in the performance of his son. So no matter how many times you try and fail, he loves you. No matter how many times you think you fall short, and you probably do, he loves you. His love is perfect and infinite because he is perfect and infinite. And when you fall into feeling guilt or shame, what's happening is gospel amnesia yet again. You're forgetting. You cannot outsin grace. You cannot outsin God's love. You've forgotten again the riches of grace, and you're believing the lie that sometimes that you're, somehow your value is determined by your performance, and you run back to the law to make it up again. I messed up, I gotta make it right. And if I make it right, then maybe, just maybe God will approve of me today. We live that way in our relationships all the time, don't we? We allow the law to dictate our relationships. I did you wrong, I need to make it right. Because if I don't make it right, you're not gonna gonna treat me the same. We believe the lie that our life only matters if we can fulfill a certain standard that we put on ourselves or that others have put on us or that you feel God has put over you through the law. But the gospel frees us from all of that. God doesn't love us based on our performance. He loves us because we are in Christ. And that reality is is as unchangeable as he is. So we're a sent people, we're a free people. In fact, it's precisely for that reason that we're sent is to proclaim a message that sets the captives free. Every one of us has a hundred people in our lives that are bound by one of those two masters, legalism or law or license. And we have the only message in the world that can set them free. Paul was sent to the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia and was given the opportunity to share a word of encouragement to the people and this is the message he shared, a message of liberty. Now some opposed his message, why? Because when you're preaching this message of scandalous grace to a bunch of religious goody two-shoes, what are they gonna say? No chance. Why? Because we threaten their pride. Their whole life is wrapped up around how good they are and you show up with a message that says you'll never be good enough and they're going to hate you for it. It's scandalous. But others, verses 42 and 43, to them it was as sweet as honey. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them again the next Sabbath. 
And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke to them, urged them to continue in a new master, continue in the grace of God. The message never changes. For so many of us, the gospel of grace is something we believed and we talk about in past tense, but Paul is telling them to continue to walk in, to dwell in every day the grace of God. Continue in grace. Remember the gospel. Fight gospel amnesia with truth. Remind each other of God's scandalous grace. Don't let our forgetfulness rob us of our joy. The chains fall off when we walk in grace, when we go deeper into grace. In fact, I believe that's the unspoken secret of Acts. We call it the Acts of the Apostles, which I think was wrong anyways. should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But yet Acts is a book that's showing us the act of grace at work in the life of his church. Proclaiming it, living it, believing it, continuing in it, persevering in it. And when we do that, verse 52, I think we can only but model the apostles and the disciples. Well, they shook off the dust from their feet. They did all they could. They proclaimed the grace of God. Some rejected it. Some received it. And the disciples were filled with joy and full of the Holy Spirit. The church is a sent people of God proclaiming freedom to set the captives free and the church is a joyful people. When we persevere in grace, despite our failings, despite our sufferings, we persevere in joy. Grace, the gospel of grace, was the root of the church's joy in the book of Acts. And it's why the church exploded to the ends of the earth. Because they had a message of freedom. And in our amnesia, we run to a million other things as our source of joy. Good things. Our doctrine. We hold the solid reformed tradition. Our heritage, our confessions, our new building, a new pastor, the legacy of a man like Pastor Kurt, wonderful things that should give us great joy, but they are not meant to be the root of our joy. I'm certain that if PC in his departure finds that all you guys do is look back to the golden days, I know Jim. You're going to have your moments where you look back to the golden days. He's an imperfect pastor. He's a dear friend. I'm thrilled that he's coming. (laughs) Jim's a fantastic guy. But if you root your joy in Jim or in the man that left such a legacy in this city or this new wonderful building or your ability to maintain the sound doctrines of grace, it will only fail you. There is only one root that's eternal. 
Only grace is meant to satisfy the longings of your heart. Only grace sets us free from legalism and license. So let grace go to work. Let grace transform and redefine your marriage. Let grace transform and redefine how you live church. Let grace transform and redefine how you work and how you play and how you fight and how you resolve conflict, how you spend your money, everything about you. So as you gather together, because gathering is good, it's important, it's necessary, And as you expound on the riches of the word, let the word and let the weight of the word drive you back to grace and allow grace to do its transforming work in you. And don't forget why God is doing this transformative work in you so that the nations might know. The mission of OGC is to engage peoples everywhere to pursue ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. Satisfaction rooted in freedom and freedom that's rooted in grace. And it's your job to engage them with it. We're sent, we're free, and we're full of joy. That's why we exist. That's who we are as the people of God. To proclaim liberty for the joy of the nations and the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we will dig and dig and dig for generations and yet have yet to unfold the eternal nature of your grace. And Lord, I pray in our digging that we would continually be amazed. You alone, O Lord, have accomplished everything on our behalf. Let our worship, let our knowing you, let our communion together, let our mission be rooted in the grace of God. I pray that this church would live up to its name by the power of the Spirit to be a church rooted in grace for the satisfaction of the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.